For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children of God, the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. I imagine most of you will recognize who I am. It's clear that I'm not Scott Strickman. Um, I'm Charlie Drew. For those of you who haven't met me before, I retired from... Um, the job that Scott now has three years ago. And uh, he asked me to fill in for him while I was on vacation. And I'm really happy to do that. I'm doing a series of four uh, talks about suffering for perhaps obvious reasons, since we're in the midst of it. I'm talking about how to understand it and how to cope with it. Today, what I'd like to do is to dive deeply into God's surprising and really extraordinary remedy to the problem of suffering. I say surprising and, and extraordinary because it's not quite what we expect, nor is it even what we at first want. We want to know why God allows certain things to happen to us. I, I love Justine's talk. She be, began with that very question. Why do things that are tough happen to us or to our friends or to people like George Floyd. Or we want relief from the recurring litany of sickness and violence and oppression and need. If God exists, if he's the mighty creator and the sustainer of everything, and if on top of all of that he is good, then why can't he give us a break? Why won't he give us a break? Well, instead of giving us an explanation for where suffering comes from, why it happens. And rather than giving us full relief from suffering, 
God gives us himself. That's God's remedy. He gives us himself. This is what Hebrews 2 tells us, and I want you to consider it with me. It begins with um, some bad news in the context of some rather uh, high and amazing news about us. And the bad news is this. We have lost control of our lives and of our world despite God's loving and good intentions. Let me read to you again from verses 6 to 8, which themselves are a quotation in Hebrews 2 from Psalm um, 8. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Now what do those few verses tell us? God loves us. He is mindful of us. He thinks about us all the time. He cares for us. And he means for us, as an expression of that care he's given to us, he means for us to take loving charge of this world. You have crowned us, there's language of royalty, with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under our feet. We are royalty placed by God over everything. Now think of just a little bit of what this entails. God means for us, in his great love for us, to bring wholesome and healthy order to nature. Agriculture was originally in view in Genesis 1, but it has come to include the harnessing of energy, the work of science, the work of medicine, even the development of microchips and so on. God also means for us to order words in the service of truth, in the service of, uh, service of beauty and justice, whether it's in tweets or in conversation, or literature, or policy proposals, or speeches. God means for us to order thought as well as words, so that we can learn about, describe, enjoy God in, and love all God has placed at our disposal. Say numbers, for example, math, and historical inquiry, reason, and the discipline of work, home life, and leisure. He means for us to order space for human thriving. By the way, I'm getting a message. Uh, let me ask Tommy, are you um, hearing me okay? Yeah, you had cut out just a little bit, but I think it's better now. How's that? Good, now. Is that good? Okay, back to what I'm saying. God means for us to order space for human thriving, like in architecture or city planning or apartment setups. He means for us to order sound, time, color, and shape in the production of music and art that opens the way to his beauty and truth and that enriches human life. He means for us to order human relationships benevolently so that we can create and nurture loving families, build beautiful and thriving cities, establish centers of learning devoted to discovery and delight in his world, cultivate mutually supportive relationships between police and the communities they serve, set up good government at every level and cooperative relationships between governments. He means for us, uh, in this high royal calling he's given to us, to order our bodies so that we can enjoy health and we can enjoy good sex and we can enjoy sports. 
He means for us to order ourselves so that all that we think and all that we feel and all that we do are in sync with each other and are good, that is to say, in sync with God. Now, all of this, that's a brief survey. I could have said more things. All of this and more, God, in love, has given us to give shape to and take care of. It's the basis for the potential richness, beauty, and goodness of life. It helps explain places like New York City, where human enterprise runs full tilt, and it explains why the recent and possible future lockdown of work and relationships was and perhaps will be so troubling to us. And it further explains why the chronic lack of opportunity and impeded freedoms of large populations in our country and in our world are so demoralizing and frustrating to those population. Those things undermine people's built-in, God-built purpose. Those things strip people of something that is essential about their humanness. And that sort of segues into the bad news. We have this very high and royal calling. But the writer to Hebrews says there's a problem. And the Bible says there's a problem. It, it helps us to see, when we understand the problem, why there is so much suffering in the world. At least it's part of the explanation for why there is. And we see it in the latter part of verse 8, where we read, at present, we do not yet see everything subject to him, that is, to the human race. That, by the way, is an extraordinary understatement. <laughs> we, by no means do we see everything under his benevolent administration. You know, many of us have enjoyed remarkable levels of health and education, social freedom, and economic stability, far beyond what many of our fellow travelers on the planet in this life and in earlier ages have known. But then, in the last few months, we, even in our privileged part of the world, have had a rude awakening. Disease, carelessly addressed, has taken 135,000, at least 135,000 American lives. Jobs, especially for the poorer and weaker members of our country, many of them fellow believers, have either disappeared or become mortally dangerous because of the nature of the work they have to do. We have seen a police officer murder an unarmed black man. Contentious, mistrustful, and vicious social discourse has filled our lives. It's filled the media, and perhaps most disturbing, the racial and economic divides that have haunted our country since its earliest days have come to fresh and disheartening expression attended by violence in our streets. People and nations exercising by God's intention and design, happy, just, loving, and good dominion over all the earth are very hard to find. Where there is dominion at all, it's often better described as domination, abuse, both of people and of the planet. And we cannot even control ourselves. This is the bad news. Why? Why do we treat each other and our planet this way? Why must we seize and cling to power and money and resources rather than share them out for the common good? 
why must we spin our stories and order our lives so that we come out on top? Why are we so preoccupied with our own personal peace, prosperity, pleasure, and safety that we pay so little attention to racism and the rising wealth disparity that keeps rising in our country? Why does the right sort of dominion, one shaped by public spiritedness, by servanthood and service, by goodness and love, elude us so repeatedly? Well, there are a lot of answers to that, but Hebrews 2.15 identifies one fundamental reason, and it's this, through fear of death, we are subject to lifelong slavery. We're in bondage to something, and it's this fear of death. We are slaves of death. Death haunts and troubles us, and that trouble or terror drives us into ourselves. It pushes us to do whatever it takes <coughs> to hold at bay that moment when we will simply disappear, when we will no longer be able to make a name for ourselves, no longer be able to speak up in our own defense, no longer be able to assert that our lives or anyone else's lives matter, no longer be able to hold on to whatever it is by which we define our value, whether it's people or possessions or careers or esteem. With personal annihilation always looming, and you feel it looming at a time like this, especially. You never know if you're going to catch this disease. With personal annihilation always looming, the temptation to grab and to hoard, to see to our own safety and good reputation, to spin to our advantage, to neglect our neighbor's need, and to remove or silence those who threaten us is very strong. This tendency starts in the sandbox <laughs> and it continues into our final hour. And this behavior, which can be both aggressive through bullying and injustice and passive through indifference and neglect, that for me is the biggest problem, leads to more suffering in this world than any of us care to admit. We cry out, God, why God did you let George Floyd die? And God answers, what have you done to make the world a place where such deaths are less likely to occur? Mr. Floyd's death happened in the world while you are on watch. It's happened in the world that I gave you to care for. This is what God says. That's the challenge. Now let me move to the good news, for this passage in Hebrews 2 is essentially good news, even though it itemizes for us the problem, the bad news. The good news is a story so astonishing that frankly it's impossible to imagine a human being making it up. <laughs> That's why I, one of the reasons I believe it's the truth. God chose to become our brother. The almighty creator chose to become a fellow creature, a fellow pilgrim. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And verse 17 says it again. He was made like his brothers in every respect 
Rather than leave us in the mess that we have made for ourselves, God joined us in the mess. In Jesus, God fully chose our experience. He chose our bodies, our limits, our weaknesses, our temptations, our trials, and in a sense, immersion in our sins, and he chose our death. Now think of God's kind and extraordinary initiative in this. At the height of the Franco-Prussian War in the 19th century, when Germans were completing their encirclement of Paris, Victor Hugo, you remember him, he wrote Les Miserables, Victor Hugo chose to enter Paris on the last train so that he could be imprisoned in Paris with his fellow countrymen. Hugo did not have to go to Paris. He could have remained free and safe. He chose to go because he loved his people and he wanted to be with them in their suffering. And so it was with our creator. God chose freely and fully to join us here in our sin-encircled city of life. And God became our brother. He made that choice day in and day out, all the way to the bitter end. Verse 10, he was made perfect through suffering. Verse 9, he tasted death for everyone. God didn't just pop in for a visit to see what human life is like. He enhanced, he embraced rather the entire story, the daily grind with all of its uncertainties and all of its difficulties from birth all the way to death. And this full embrace is really quite astonishing if you think about it. Think again of Victor Hugo entering Paris. Once he entered that beloved city, Hugo was stuck there. But we have to realize and understand the Son of God was never stuck here. Having chosen to be a fellow pilgrim, he kept making that choice every day of his human life, knowing that at any moment, with a simple word, he could have... Um, removed himself from the limits and sufferings that he had imposed upon himself. Think of the beginning of his ministry. At starving in the wilderness, Jesus could have turned stones into bread. He had the power to do it at the temptation of Satan, but he chose not to take an end run around his chosen identification with us, choosing instead to wait on God for his food, just like every other human being has to. And at the end of his life, arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus tells his disciples to put away their swords with these remarkable words. He says, do you think that I cannot call on my father right now? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. That's Matthew 26, 53. You know, on that final night of his life, the Son of God was, like George Floyd, in custody, handcuffed, and subject to whatever brutality and indignity the arresting officers might choose to inflict upon him. But there was one enormous difference. Just around the corner, Jesus had 6,000, that's what 12 legions are, 
He had 6,000 supernaturally armed friends ready to do his bidding. And Jesus never called in his friends. And here's the point I want you to see. Having chosen to share George Floyd's humanity, God the Son fully embraced every part of that humanity. He was made like his brothers in every respect, verse 17, including his powerlessness under oppression. As so often we must wait upon God for justice and for vindication. So Jesus waited upon God for justice and vindication. The nails were not what kept Jesus pinned to the cross. It was his will. And that's what makes so supremely ironic the mockery. If you're the son of God, why don't you come down? He could have done it. The only thing that kept him on the cross was his choice in real time to stay there. Now, this leads the, us to ask, why? <laughs> why this full identification from birth to death with everything in between? Why? I'm going to give you two answers. Number one, because God knew he had to do it. And number two, because God wanted to do it. Think about first, he had to. God knew that this was the only way to undo the suffering that we have brought upon ourselves. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The word fitting here means necessary, given the nature of the things, given the way things work. You see, it's simply a God knew that it wasn't enough for God to look upon our sufferings from a distance or even to feel great grief over them, which he does. He had to enter them fully as one of us. That's what the word taste means in verse 7. Not a sip, but a full inclusion in the experience. And he had to endure them to the bitter end. He had to do so without caving in the way we do to sin. For only then could he be made perfect, made complete as our Savior. Let me put it this way. In every day of Jesus' life and in every challenge he faced, his father was asking him this question. My son, will you prove yourself to be a true man? Will you do what no human being before or after you has ever been able to do or has ever fully chosen to do? Will you bring all things, including yourself, in these circumstances into subjection to me? Will you love and will you trust me with all that you are and with all that you have as a man? Will you? And in every day, and in every challenge of his life, including the final one, Jesus answered, Yes, Father, I will. You are my master. I submit to you. Why did he do it? Why was it necessary? 
so that at the end of his lovely life of unprecedented human obedience, he could make propitiation, that's verse 17, for those he loves, people like you and me, so that he could offer his perfect human life in substitution for our imperfect and rebellious lives and carry our sin away on his shoulders into outer darkness and there perish in our place. Friends, this is the great wonder and the great mystery of the Christian story. We ultimately get to escape suffering and death, the suffering and death that we have brought upon ourselves because our creator, our God, has willingly endured the suffering and death he did not deserve in our place as our brother and fellow pilgrim. We get to be crowned with glory and honor, a crowning that we do not deserve because our God and Father who deserved every crown chose to be crowned with shame in our place. Now precisely how this works can mystify us, but that it works and that it was necessary for God to do is at the center of the story that God tells us. God had to undo what Adam did by fully entering Adam's failed story and replaying it successfully himself. This he did in Jesus, his son, our brother, who, verses 14 and 15, through death destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You know, death happened to George Floyd at the hands of a wicked man. But death did not happen to Jesus. With George Floyd and the rest of us on his heart and on his mind, God's son, having chosen mortality, went after mortality, tooth and nail, grabbed it in his holy hand, broke it into pieces, trampling its master in the dust. We could never have done that. Only God could do that. And God did do that in our incarnate brother. He did it because he had to in order to rescue us. But let me end with one other remarkable thing. God did this because he wanted to. Verses 11 and 12, he's not ashamed. Think about that. He's not ashamed to call you and me brothers and sisters, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, to my siblings. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. You know, you and I can be pretty snobby sometimes. We put up with certain people, even Christian people, reluctantly sometimes, out of a sense of Christian duty. But we sometimes would rather be somewhere else, with somebody else 
or simply left alone. We aren't interested in what they are interested in, and they lack the sorts of gifts and experience that draw us out and make conversation stimulating, or perhaps they are drearily self-absorbed and it just drives us nuts. Worse, they don't belong. They come from the wrong group. They come from the wrong race. Imagine how boring and unsuitable we must be to Jesus, <laughs> to the Son of God, through whom all things were made and are in subjection. The person who has sustained the Son since he created it 4.5 billion years ago. The person who is thoroughly and gloriously good while we are only marginally so. The person who formed Albert Einstein's mind. The person who taught Mozart to write music. Aretha Franklin to sing, Sammy Davis Jr. to dance, Bob Dylan to write lyrics, Mia Hamm to dribble, and Simone Biles to jump. That's who Jesus is. You and I are colossally uninteresting compared to that person. We must be an unbelievable bore to such a person. Why would he ever want to be with us? Why, would he, why he would ever want to be with us is beyond me, and yet he really does. We aren't at all boring to him. We aren't at all unsuitable to him. God came down and endured what he endured because he is not ashamed to call uninteresting, intellectually limited, morally weak, limitedly creative, boringly self-absorbed, negligent, broken, and even destructive people like us, his siblings. Brothers and sisters, verse 12. His children, verse 13. You know, God doesn't only love us. God likes us. He likes you. He likes you. He wants to be in your family with you. He wants you to be in his family with him. And therefore, he has done what he has done. Listen again to verse 13, where the writer puts the words of Psalm 22, the latter part of Psalm 22, into Jesus's own mouth. Hear and wonder out the, at the joy with which Jesus triumphantly returned from his sufferings, speaks. He says, Behold, Father, I and the children you have given me. Father, these are my friends. Father, these are the ones I've brought back from death with me. These are the ones I died for, I love, and I want to be with us in glory. Welcome them, Father. Welcome them. I have welcomed them. You welcome them. And the Father says, By all means. By all means, Jesus, that's why I sent you. I sent you so you could bring them back, bring them home. How encouraging that is to me. How glad it makes me. So let me end with a little takeaway. What do God's chosen sufferings and presently welcome, joyful welcome mean for us now? We're not in heaven yet. The work isn't over yet. What do they mean for us now? Not the immediate relief we may be seeking. Remember, 
the latter part of verse 8, we do not yet see everything subject to man. We still struggle to master ourselves. We still struggle to master the general brokenness of things. Rather, God's chosen sufferings and present joyful welcome of us means a living hope, a hope that is filled with life and energy right now. Living hope, a hope that can run like a mighty river through the landscape of our still broken worlds and our still broken lives. We get to tell ourselves and we get to tell our friends that a fellow traveler who is also our brother in the father's house has won over death and all that attaches to death. And it's only a matter of time before all of that's gone. We get to tell ourselves and our friends that our brother, together with his father, despite our continuing imperfections, are with us now and actually love to be with us now. We get to tell ourselves and our friends that God has actually started to make royalty out of us. Do you know? There's still sin in you, but deep down inside of you, you are royalty now. You want justice. You want the truth. You love everything that God loves, everything that Jesus loves. This is true of you now if you're in Christ. You're a new creation. There's a lot of crud wrapped around your life still. There's a lot that has to get fixed. But don't let the devil tell you that you do not love what is right and good and true and beautiful because you do. How can you not if Jesus is in you? That's what your brother has done for you. And you get to tell yourself that. And you get to tell your friends that. We get to tell ourselves and our friends that it's only a matter of time before he will complete this good and noble thing that he has begun in us, wiping every tear from our eyes, every stain from our record, record and every corruption from our present behavior. You see what this does? It motivates us to do the right thing, even if it seems small, even if it goes unnoticed, to say or do that thing that brings someone else relief, even if they don't notice that it came from us, to say no to hoarding, to say no to spin, even when no one but Jesus is looking, to begin to live up a bit more fully to the royal family likeness which we now possess, thanks to our brother. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, um, you are God the Son, who came from glory, God incarnate, to own our life and experience and our sufferings, and even to own our sin, even though you would never sin, in order to rescue us, from the mess we have made of our world and of our lives. Lord, we don't deserve this, but we have it. And we're so grateful. And we pray that you would build into us by your spirit this living hope that I just talked about so that we fight the good fight, so we don't um, grow cold in love for one another and our neighbors or you. Lord, do this by the power of your spirit through the grace and the forgiveness of the cross. We pray it in your name. Amen.